Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve America's cultural divisions by talking about how hard it is to dig in the frozen New England soil. I'm your host, Charles Bovinger, coming to you from Washington, D.C., where we have finally had a tiny bit of snow throwing the city into chaos. With me on the line, as always, from Princeton, New Jersey, my co-host, David Wheel. David, how is it going? It's a it's a lovely sunny day here in Princeton after uh, some. It was it was a dreary day yesterday, but the dreary brought snow, which now gives us this you know beautiful, Christmassy, wintry uh, display of fresh glinting snow on the sidewalks. So a lovely so it day accumulated. Yeah, there was like um, it was like four inches or so. Wow. I ours didn't accumulate and um I used to love snow in my pre wheelchair days ever so much. Um yeah. which is my favorite thing ever. When you're in a wheelchair though, it's got two problems. One is that if it's thick enough, it just makes it impossible to move. And the other is that if it's just slushy and is melting, then it just creates a mess. Yeah. Um the worst part being that inevitably the snow that gets on the wheels is going to rub up against your shirt while you're sitting down. Yeah, you're just yeah, going yeah. to have these giant mud streaks along the sides of your shirt, and, and it's going to be very cold and very wet, and that will be very sad. Um, thankfully, I have not had to do too much of that so far, um, and uh, it hasn't happened on the way to work when I'm all dressed up and fancy-like. Um, and in addition to that, speaking of good things, I will be going to work on Monday because the government did not shut down. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, guess, this is... This is a nice thing. Um, figured out what they were doing. Yeah. Well, they figured out what they were doing for another couple of weeks. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Not. Yeah. Right. I was. I was thinking, both in terms of the um, snowpocalypse. Oh yes. The you know the sort of the polar vortex stuff that shut down the government for natural and unavoidable reasons. And now I guess you're. I, I didn't realize for a second that you were actually talking about this. Very nat. Uh, very unnatural, very avoidable uh, um, continuing resolution issue. Yes. Would you say that the continuing resolution issue reflects a difficulty with compromise? I would. I would even say that there is a threat of sleepwalking off oh. of a fiscal cliff. Indeed, indeed. I think we <laughs> should find a few more metaphors here. Um but yes, uh, on this week's show, we're going to talk about a couple of things in the news, and we're going to try to reflect them through a couple of different themes, which I'm sure you'll pick up on. Um, first, we were going to talk about um, the tax bill. We talked about it a little bit last week in terms of the process that was used for it, but we didn't really talk much about the substance or what kind of compromises didn't go into it that perhaps could have. Um, one thing that's been in the news is that uh, Marco Rubio wanted to expand the child tax credit by having the corporate tax rate only get lowered from 35% to 22% rather than from 35% to 20%. And we were all apparently told that um, the 20% was an absolute red line in the sand that could not be crossed. Uh, David, do you think it's reasonable to say to set a number like that and then say, um, this number absolutely cannot be crossed. Their logic having been, by the way, 
that if we allow 22%, then eventually somebody's going to say, oh, well, we could also get this other thing by raising it another 1%, and sooner or later it's back up to 35%. Yeah, well, I mean, my understanding is that um, the you know leadership made this argument about sticking to the nice round number of 20%, um, rel- you know, to get it well below the global average or OECD average of, you know, around 25%. Um, but then the president himself, you know, although, I mean, even saying the phrase, the president himself, it implies a degree of respect and authority that does not seem, uh, applicable these days but in any case the president himself uh after that red line was was ma- was issued um gave cover to the idea of raising the or not raising but you know uh not dropping the tax below 22 percent. so it's obviously just a number um it's a number that is reached there's no there's no magical effect of bringing it down to 20%, um, as we, as we saw in that, um, clip of Gary Cohn talking to an assembly of corporate leaders, asking them whether they were planning on investing in, um, uh, you know, new, businesses and and new jobs in the United States as a result of um, any potential tax reform. And most of them, you know, did not even pretend that they were going to increase hiring in the United States with the windfall that they would get from this tax reform. And he was, he was uh, dismayed um, to put it, to put it mildly, you know, we know like there's no, there's no magical effect of what the number is, the number just will have certain effects on um, corporate revenues and government revenues. So um, Rubio and Lee, if they really valued this child tax credit, could have forced it in the bill with you know a 21 or 22 percent corporate tax rate for a robust child tax credit. Um, and that would have been where we are. And then the, you know, then the Europeans and, um, you know, the bolts and the, you know, East Asian economies could have then responded by dropping their corporate tax rate to, to 19%. And that's, you know, the world we'd be in. Um, the, uh, there's no, there's no, yeah, there's no, reason that it, um, it's not like it's a floor that other economies couldn't compete with us further by, uh, by dropping below in the same way that, uh, evidently they did in the past. You, you probably know more about this issue than, than I, but my understanding is that the last time that, uh, you know, America attempted to lower the corporate tax rate, um, to broaden the base and increase revenues and increase, you know, international competitive, uh, competitiveness of American firms, um, the rest of the world responded and that got us to the situation we were in, you know, over the past few years. And it's unlikely that the same thing 
will not repeat itself if this tax bill is uh, passed into law. I, yeah, I don't I don't know well enough to know that it was exactly the last time that we did it. But um, as a general principle, you know, my understanding is that part of the problem we've had is that the U.S.'s corporate tax rate ended up, you know, being steady, but adding in all of these particular deductions generally towards industries that have to be favored by whoever's introducing the deduction um, such that, you know, our effective tax rate is much lower than 35 percent. And the rest of the world just didn't do as many stupid deductions, but went with a lower tax rate overall, which, you know, any economist will tell you is a much more efficient and better way to do it. Um, and, yeah, that's the whole idea of lowering the rate, broadening the base. But uh, somehow this tax bill that we ended up with doesn't really seem to be even achieving that simplification goal that they originally had, because they just that's the problem with deductions. People don't want to get rid of deductions. Deductions are things yeah. people like. Well, and that's, you know, going to our theme of compromise. Um, there are, yeah, there's like, there's what the Republicans say they were going to do or what they said they were going to do um, when campaigning this, you know, they're, they're going to drain the swamp. That sounds good. You know, they're going to cut taxes for the middle class. That sounds great. Um, and then what actually happens? Like, well, if they wanted to lower the rate and broaden the base and reduce uh, the thicket of deductions that make the tax rate so um, hard to calculate and tax law so difficult to navigate for that regular people, uh, there would at least be an argument for that to go against, you know, the arguments against it, like the... Um, you know, deductions for state and lo local taxes. There are good arguments for keeping that, uh, for keeping those deductions. But there would at least be an argument, um, you know, a consistent principled argument uh, in favor of a kind of simplifying reform that would get rid of that. But, you know, what, what actually happens is they take this rhetoric that they ran on and, and arguably won on, um, and then they just substitute their own thicket of deductions for their own constituencies. And, um, you know, you get this grotesque contrast, um, which I think is accurate. It's obviously a, a, a partisan talking point uh, coming from the left, but I think it does reflect the, the truth about the bill um, that was passed out of the Senate that, uh, now you can no longer deduct the taxes that you send to your uh, local government to, you know, effectively send your children to public school. Um, but you now can, or at least beyond a certain point, uh, you know, your ability to deduct those taxes is significantly reduced, as opposed to now uh, your ability to, dedu uh, to deduct the, ta um, the cost of sending your kid to a private school which that bill has now vastly increased. And it's just that kind of, um, you know, that's not the reform we were looking for. That's not the reform that was promised, right? right? That's just, um, well, the you know, whole drain the swamp thing came out because, um, if, if I recall the story correctly, somebody suggested it to Trump. He didn't like it. 
and then he used it once and he saw how the crowd responded and then yeah. he was like oh this is great we're going to keep using this right right um yeah it's not draining the swamp it's just well, it's like a you know it's like rearranging the deck chairs on the titanic uh, yeah what how can you apply that to the swamp it's like uh it's like rearranging the the reeds it's like replanting the it's replanting the swamp right and then getting the flood because you don't have the wetlands anymore yeah we're really uh we're really pushing that metaphor. We're really pushing it. That's our thing. If we can do anything out of this show, it is to popularize the metaphor that we created a flood of even worse things by draining the swamp. Right. Uh, yeah, it's... I mean, if you go by the... It, there's that interesting tension where sometimes political parties are just a collection of interests and not ideologically bound in any real way. But sometimes they are and that's so if you look at for example when they were talking during the um primaries about um would you would you raise taxes by one dollar for cutting ten dollars in spending uh and they all said no like taxes cannot go up any amount and some yeah. have speculated that part of the reason we have such nasty partisanship now is that the party's ideologies have um the party's ideologies have begun to sync up in a way that they they didn't before i mean sync up within the party that before you used to have you know conservative southern democrats and northern republican liberals and now you don't really have that and so now that partisanship is aligned with ideology that makes compromise harder um but at the same time is it really ideology that they're bound by or their particular collection of, of interests with the Democrats it's easier to spot because you can say, Oh, there's the thing that they're doing because young single women want this. There's a the thing they're doing because Latino immigrants want this. There's the thing they're doing because it's favored by, you know, um, right. by this group or that group with, um, but with, uh, um, with, 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 uh, the Republicans, you, it it makes it a little it's a little harder sometimes to identify that group that they're for because the party is nearly monolithic in terms of its demographics but not quite and by the numbers you'd say oh well they their party their policies should all be in favor of working class whites but then none of their policies are in favor of working class whites right um, that's the that's the i mean you you put your finger on something uh really important there, which is that, you know, democratic party goals are, um, sort of intention because the party represents a lot of different, you know, somewhat distinct, you know, groups with, with very different, um, uh, very different does. Yeah. Like, the the specific policy goals and specific visions they have for the future are distinct. They're not necessarily in conflict, but they are distinct. And so it creates a platform that is um, sort of full of sort of mutually um, – they're not – you know, it's, it's incoherent, but not in conflict. You know, and there is a shared, there are some sort of overarching uh, shared ideas that, that make it all work, but um, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a beautiful mosaic 
Um, whereas with the Republicans, it's like, okay, what's the group that they represent demographically? What are the ideas that, what are the big ideas that they use to bring their coalitions together? And then what are the policies that they actually bring forward to serve, um, those groups? And it doesn't add up at all. Right. Um, I mean, you know, certain parts of it add up, obviously the pro business, uh, side of it adds up. But um, for the others, they just have fantasy, uh, the fantasy that, you know, that these corporate lobbyists who rewrote the tax bill are, you know, are draining the swamp, that they're draining themselves. It's, it's nonsense. Yeah. And um, the result is uh, this, yeah, very confusing world where, um, you know, they can't, they run on 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 one set of uh rhetorical devices and then govern on a completely different one yeah the 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 liberal ex, the explanation liberals give for how the republican party operates and the one that seems to be the simplest explanation but which is generally considered too harsh to be true is that they offer the rich people the tax cuts and the favorable business regulations and all of the various crony capitalist things. And then they offer the poor working class whites a healthy doping, uh, doping, dosing of, well, you know, it's kind of the same thing, of, yeah. of racism and bigotry to make them go along on the cultural wars. And, um, I mean, that's what liberals have been saying for a long time. They've been saying that for decades. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was thinking about this, that I don't think that the disconnect was as bad under Bush because, you know, Bush had this whole compassionate conservative rhetoric where the rhetoric did attempt to uh, overcome this breach between rhetoric and policy that we're describing now. Um, the right. same, I mean, liberals made the same arguments against it, right? And this is, this is part of what leads into this, uh, strange moment of some people kind of looking back nostalgically to Bush and like, oh, look what he said about Muslims. Compare that to, to Trump. Look what he said about, you know, coming together as a country. Compare that to Trump, right? So this is rehabilitation of Bush that is kind of bizarre in some ways. But, um, I think, you know, the rehabilitation reflects the fact that partisan rhetoric coming from the left and the, and the Democratic Party um, overstated the case. Right. You know, it's not that they were necessarily wrong in their evaluation of what the policy effects of, um, you, know, the, you know, the real world effects of Bush's policies would be. Um, but then they went beyond that to you know, impugn the motives of, of Bush and, you know, um, his, uh, you know, the honesty of the administration. Um, whereas like compassionate conservatism was a little bit more coherent than right. this. I mean, know, it Trumpist included immigration party. Exactly. It's, there were yeah. a lot of things that he did that were trying to reach over and get, groups generally held by democrats and in the was it 2004 election he got something like 44 percent of the latino vote 
Right, right. Um, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it, this is this is getting quite far afield, but something that's been um, picking the, you know, sort of tickling the back of my mind is uh, people, you know, people in media, uh, particularly on the left, you know, pilloried McCain for um, making this big deal about regular order when he killed the, um, you know, the most recent attempt to torpedo the ACA. Uh, and then he turns around and, and votes for this utterly crazy, uh, well, I, you know, this tax bill that was the product of a, of an uh, significantly more absurd and chaotic process than even the, right. um, even that one didn't have handwritten illegible notes in the margins. Right. Exactly. You know, so, and, and rightly so. And part of the reason, uh, part of the reason, one of the reasons offered for, you know, critiquing McCain is that, um, way back when he voted against, uh, Republican tax reform that would have been too beneficial to, um, you know, high income, uh, people at the expense of the middle class. And it's like, uh, you know, what changed? And, there are a lot of things that could have changed, but one of the things that I wonder about is if McCain had, you know, just bear with me for, uh, you know, a minute or two uh, of, you know, super counterfactual thinking. All right, let's do it. That if, that if McCain had won in 2008, it would have been part of a narrative of kinder, gentler Republican Party. Right? Right that might have actually had significant effects. Like obviously the corporate plutocrats would still have been there fighting for control over the Republican party, but people who wanted to see the Republicans keep moving towards immigration reform, keep moving towards uh, solutions for the middle class, they would also have been energized and McCain would have, or, you know, the McCain administration would have at least faced the choice of, um, you know, how do we staff uh, this administration? What direction are we going in this administration? And there would have been at least a pressure to, um, erect some barriers to those plutocrat interests. You know, the plutocratic interests and the racist nativist Steve King of Iowa interests, right? Yeah. But the fact that Obama won sucked the wind out of that segment of the party, right? And that that's part of what led to the Tea Party and doubling down on this, uh, on, on the deplorable message. And getting us to this point where, um, you know, these base voters uh, revel in being called deplorables and say, you know, how dare you call me deplorable? What do you have to tell me? You know, you're, uh, you know, you're the one who voted for a Kenyan Muslim terrorist, right? And then, you know, this descent into madness and, um, and fantasy, 
and um part of it i think was this moment when uh you know the republicans sort of lost this um lost the hope of appealing to uh the, you know, the, I hate, I hate saying the middle, uh, cause it's, it's such a muddy term, but, but that's kind of what I mean. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, whatever. It's, it this is, is, I mean, so, but the interesting, an interesting distinction, cause there's, when we, if you, even if we just say that the Republican party exists for the plutocratic interest, which based on what it's been doing in the Trump administration has seemed to be true at points, certainly with this tax bill, I mean, the tax bill that they put through, that was for the plutocratic interest. That wasn't for that wasn't for anybody else. Yeah. Um, they even said openly that they had to pass it because the rich donors would stop giving them money if they didn't, because that's right. their purpose. That's the purpose of Republicans in government right now. Whenever they talk about shrinking Leviathan, whenever they talk about um, you know doing anything to halt the growth of the government, it is really about the fact that when the government grows, the rich have to pay more in taxes. And and the corporations pay more in taxes and they're there to stop that. And it's not unreasonable to suggest that there should be a party that checks the growth of government for when it gets too far. But instead of being a reasoned party that looks and says, have we gone too far? It's a party that always says we've gone too far and always has to cut taxes and doesn't care what the situation is. And this tax bill is the result of, of, of that. But what... Um, what I what I what I want what I want to get at here is yes this tax bill is purely for the plutocratic interest it, it screws everybody else but um, if you look at the Trump administration on as a whole and what the Republican Party as a whole has been doing for a while their interests between throwing red meat to the base I mean those are in tension with the plutocratic interests because the plutocratic interests don't care about gay marriage they don't care about right. transgender people they don't care about in fact they want immigration law to be reformed in a helpful way that allows them to get more cheap workers. That's right. something that they want. Um, they don't want a Muslim ban. They don't want things that will make America less attractive as a place to do business. They might be a little, sometimes they're just short sighted on gutting the education system um, and how that will have, or infrastructure and how it will have long-term impacts. But I mean, everybody's a little short sighted, but I mean, this yeah. is where there are strong elements of, when it comes to the tax bill and the health care reform, those were purely about the plutocratic interest. It was the same. I mean, the health care bill and the tax bill are the same thing. Cut money from health care so that you can give tax cuts to the rich. That was what it was about. Removing the, repealing the individual mandate in this to save money, that was, I mean, that was just so that they could free it up to give to the rich people. And this tax bill happens to be more indefensible than the Bush tax cut of you know 2001, where at least you're giving everybody is getting a tax cut. They weren't increasing taxes on some groups because of the way it played out. Yeah. But so that me that, that brings us then to the interesting question, which is, is what, what is the compromise, if any, that the plutocratic interests have made with the sort of what we would call the deplorable interest, what Hillary Clinton would did call the deplorable <laughs> interests. Like right. how do we, um, how do we how do we reconcile which things the because the plutocratic interests have compromised they've compromised in the sense of saying 
were okay with some of the um the homosexual bashing and the transgender bashing on a certain right. level but um there are points you know look at the North Carolina bathroom bill that ended up getting a lot of businesses to pull out there are yeah. limits to what the plutocrats will, will accept as part of throwing red meat to the base and do you view that as a form of interparty compromise do you think that's a conscious thing that's happening yeah, no, that's an interesting point, and you know, this is uh, this is good because we're, I think, forcing ourselves to reevaluate the thing we said before about a relatively consistent um, Republican uh, coalition and their you know relatively consistent um, you know rhetoric that they campaign on. Because as you say, as you are are currently pointing out, um, the plutocratic interest. Uh, has been forced to compromise and it's it's not like you know compromise is often a you know it's not always but it's often a good word um or it at least implies a certain humility and decency you know if you're compromising um if you're compromising for something as opposed to just as merely compromising your values um but yeah they compromised in a very negative way to tolerate a certain amount of, um, these, um, how shall I characterize them? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the red meat to, to conservative, um, voters, socially, religiously conservative voters. Um, I mean, I do think we would be remiss if we didn't mention, that the standard view of the Republican Party's coalition up until the Trump era was that it was a, a tripartite coalition of evangelicals, business interests, and defense hawks. Right. And, you know, with Trump, they've basically thrown away the defense people. I mean, that's where you lose your max boots. Um, right. And, and they've, yeah, they've just, they've just, they just sort of threw that away with the Trump era, and they've been just doing disastrous stuff for our alliances and everything the defense people cared about. Um, well, you know, and that's, but that itself is, is probably, is a problematic characterization because, um, you know, the, the right wing defense hawks themselves, um, had terrible ideas about American power and were incapable of, um, drawing lines in American commitments and matching um, ends, ends and means. means. Oh yes, there's that phrase. No, yeah, well, it's a, it's the key phrase. It and, is the key phrase. Um, you know, for for all the criticism that one might bring to bear against the Obama administration for being sort of passive uh, in the face of transformations and challenges internationally, at least they. at least they were relatively consistent in attempting to retrench. Like that was their, that was the goal was to retrench. And they mostly did retrench. Um, and that was in response to these Max Boots of the world who basically seemed to say everything, everywhere, 100%. You know, that's the American... Like, how do we decide 
uh, where to invest American power. And the sort of Vulcan response, this right-wing defense policy response, this is a little crude uh, as a characterization, but, you know, more or less, it was everywhere, 100% all the time. Um, what's going on in Syria? Oh, you know, we should we should control the narrative there. We should invest enough to uh, dictate outcomes in Syria. Uh, what about Ukraine? Also there. What about North Korea? Also there. <laughs> right? And that's, right. um, you know, they created uh, many problems that the Trump administration is, um, for all of the, the chaos and incompetence of, you know, gutting the State Department, for example, um, it's not entirely clear to me that they are wrong to, for example, make just make a decision about investing in specific relationships and writing off other relationships, right? Like that's, we'll have to see what the outcome there is because um, just saying everything everywhere all the time didn't work. Saying, okay, retrench and pivot to Asia and then passively respond and belatedly uh, react to, you know, the crisis in Syria, the crisis in Ukraine, Russian election meddling, that type of thing. That, you know, it's too inchoate a, a, um, a policy to really characterize as like working or not working. It, it sort of showed America as, as passive and reactive. And now we have a Trump administration that is um, investing in, I mean, they are investing in the relationship with Japan. They are investing in the relationship with Saudi. Um, for example, and, you know, I, I, it's, it's, it's insane that I'm uh, sort of defending them, but I think, but we're gonna have to see where that goes and whether that um, actually bears fruit, but at least it shows some discernment, which the max boots of the world um, didn't really exhibit. No, I, I would, I would agree that there was too little discernment by people who thought we could just do everything everywhere. Um, of course, you're being very gracious by acting as though there's any kind of reasoning behind what the Trump administration is doing. Um, uh, but, well, that's, I mean, so, again, I want to distinguish between, know. you know, yeah. the, the evisceration of the diplomatic core right. and, um, this more top level, uh, stuff where, I mean, you know, they are saying like Israel matters 100%, um, a strong alliance with a, an unapologetic Japan matters, you know? whatever whatever the effects of these choices are at least their choices which are understandable and, and explainable right. uh given the world that we're in right. and they might not be i mean then you know this stuff is complicated so it's not as though there's one obviously right answer uh but the point is that um it's not 
the same level of incompetence that goes into gutting the diplomatic corps is not what we're seeing in the selection of these relationships to right. prioritize Although, at to the a certain of other extent some of the relationships are being bolstered or not bolstered based on whether the leader happens to throw a big parade for Trump when he gets there <laughs> which uh, is disconcerting. Although yeah. when you talk about who's actually setting the policy on some of these things, when it's not Trump himself, they probably have something more competent going on. Yeah, I don't, you know, but I, it, I mean, you, but when you mentioned the things that we've tried before, particularly in the middle East, what we saw during the Arab spring was that we basically at some point tried every different thing with, with everybody and none of them. Right. Worked. With right. Iraq, we tried the full-scale invasion and occupation. With Libya, we tried doing just the air power. With Syria, we tried doing arming some of the rebels a little bit, but not doing all that much. And basically, it was just a failure everywhere. Except Tunisia, where we just weren't paying attention. Right, where it wasn't really... Right. With, with Tunisia, where it started. I mean, Tunisia just is, in many ways... Um, distinct. I had a professor who was from Tunisia for a Middle Eastern history class that I took in college, and um, he would speak very favorably of how open and tolerant he felt Tunisia was compared to its neighbors. Yes. And when the Arab Spring came about, that did seem to be um, one of the things that helped it. Indeed. I, it made yeah, it less surprising that it started there. In that, in that region, and uh, so I'm not going to make you know make a fool of myself but uh that that echoes what i understand to be the case right now yeah. not that this is a little bit of a pivot here but when you are talking about something like the culture in one place being more um conducive to some of these reforms um we are not great at discussing cultures as opposed to <laughs> thing as opposed to like broader civilizational issues you know um when for example when some of the people on the right who fit into the let's throw red meat to the base want to say stuff about oh islam is incompatible with democracy and they just ignore the places where there is islam and democracy um <clears throat> and they want to say oh there's a there's this or that wrong with you know this religion or these things but it's really always I mean, almost, almost always and everywhere, an issue of the culture of the day, because there were points when the white European Christian culture that is so lauded by conservatives was the oppressive and um, not particularly well-educated or successful one. Um, and there are, and then there were, and at that time, you know, the Islamic culture was the, was one of the heights, places that was a height of civilization in the world. Um and the notion that it could be one thing at one point and then change at some other point as to who's in the lead, quote unquote, as it were. I mean, that's they want to attribute it to like, oh, because white Christians from Europe have been on top for the last you know, 100, 150 years. It therefore must always be that way. And there must be something fundamentally correct about their um, their civilization. So it's almost as if you need to make a distinction between a civilization, which you can view as sort of a long term you know, X thousands of years in an area versus its current culture. And, um, you know, the, the current culture matters a lot. And when they talk about some of the things that are wrong in the Middle East, they're talking about the current culture there, which is something that 
can be fixed and is not in any way, shape or form, um, you know, stuck. Yeah. I think, uh, I think culture in America, for example, has changed drastically, you know, over the last 70 years. Right. Um, you know, and culture changes in cyclical ways and, you know, culture, I think some people, um, don't like using the term because it's so vague. The problem is that so many different things factor into what we mean when we say culture, that it's a shorthand for, um, societal transformation, you know, societal transformations coming from so many different sources that, um, you know, that it's easy to become confused, uh, when attempting to talk about it, but simultaneously it continues to be used precisely because it is such a powerful, broad category. Um, so I think it, it is useful to talk about culture. Um, it can be useful to talk about culture, but you just have to approach it knowing that you're talking about, um, like a multivariate function, right? And then there is a thing you can call culture, but it depends on, um, the economy, recent history, demographics. Um, when I say demographics, I meant sort of age composition, right? Uh, but then potentially other aspects of demographics, like, um, urban versus rural, urban versus rural, um, you know, ethnic composition, you know, native language composition. I mean, there are all these things, you know, are part of society. And if you want to try to talk in big picture about that society, you're, you are going to be talking about this thing we call, you know, quote unquote culture. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it, I think it is a good thing to try to rescue the word from people who attempt to essentialize it and render it a timeless, unchanging, um, sort of civilizational signifier, like, like you were describing, uh, because they're obviously wrong. <laughs> you know? I mean, they're just so obviously wrong. Anybody past a certain age can, can know that it's wrong because we've seen, again, as I said, you know, the culture in America change over the course of our lives. I mean, make America great again. They're implying right, that, there was a good culture and now there's a bad culture. Right, right. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I agree. Um, and I think there are sticky variables. You know, I think there are things in certain places uh, that, things in certain places, you know, here, here I am being extraordinarily vague. Um You know, different groups of people in different places differ from one another. Um, people want different things. People prioritize different things. And um, the, it, you know, it's a fantasy that, uh, you know, that, that all people are exactly the same. Um, I don't, you know, phrased in this way, I don't think many people would disagree with me or think that they ever disagree with me. Or I think many people would say that I'm just 
you know, talking nonsense and spouting vague, vague generalities. But, you know, a Marxist perception of the world believes that everyone is fundamentally the same and that um, the differences that are expressed are a result of illegitimate factors, you know, overlying our fundamental class interests, right? Like, um, conversely, one of the things Bush got wrong in invading Iraq was the belief that all Iraqis were exactly the same as, you know, the good people of Texas, you know, suburbs. And that if we moved in there and, um, <clears throat> you know, surgically, uh, removed this oppressive state that, uh, you know, the Iraqi people would greet us as liberators and welcome democracy and, you know, become small business owners and, <laughs> and there would be a flowering of, of freedom in the Middle East. Um, that was, that was wrong. And it was wrong because it was excessively universalistic. Uh, so, you know, culture does matter. History does matter. Uh, these, these distinctions between people do matter, but, but obviously they change and to use culture as a club in the way that, you know, these bigots, uh, who are springing into politics all across the Western world, uh, you know, as they do is, is morally and intellectually wrong. Right. And there can be no compromise with them. I mean, they, you know, they're, they're moving in a, in a very dangerous direction and their characterizations of the world have to be argued against and defeated. Um, because, because they're just fundamentally wrong. And I don't, I don't, I don't see how, you know, compromise can be extended to, to that. Right. I mean, that's, I mean, that's the paradox of the liberal open liberal, small L liberal open world, which is that you want to say, it's acceptable for people to go out and do their own thing. But at the same time the you know, then you end up with things that cannot be accepted by that. Uh, like, right. like these movements that want to create illiberalism, which yeah. has been having quite a success recently. And, you know, it's not a coincidence that stuff like what's going on in Hungary, um, that tends to be the sort of thing that happens when there's, or, you know, Trump in America or Brexit, that this is all stuff that tends to happen right after a gigantic financial collapse. You know, historically, when, when you yeah. see things like that over time, yeah. these tend to these tend to be related to economic issues. And I'm not I'm not of the opinion that everything that happens culturally is purely deterministic based on economics, but it's a big factor. Yeah. I mean what started the Arab Spring, it was, you know, a a, a fruit vendor who was you know, upset about the egregious taxes he had to pay. It was a monetary consideration. But it was monetary consideration that was coupled with the idea of dignity. Right. It's a combination of a lot of things. And, uh, no, but, I mean, you know, dignity itself, um, obviously the economic component of that is, a, is an enormous factor. Right. And um, taking us back to the beginning with the red meat for the base, I mean, that was what Lyndon Johnson was, uh, I believe it was Lyndon Johnson, this quote was going around recently, that uh, one of the, the, the problems that the Civil Rights Act created for Democrats de demographically is that, you know, it used to be that you could take 
that, that a white man could be incredibly poor and put upon in various ways, stamped on by other white men. But as long as you could tell him he was better than the best black person, he still felt proud. Right. And then we go through this cultural shift that starts saying, no, no, that's not true. And yep. and then it is followed by a rage that um, that doesn't really add up in a lot of ways from the white working class. No, there's the a you know there's a similar similarly discouraging um, quote from you know the the Ottoman reform period where <laughs> uh, allegedly a you know, Greek Ottoman said. Uh, when I was below, you know, when I was told I was second class to the Muslims, um, I could accept that, but now you're telling me I'm equal to the Jews. Mm. And, uh, you know, that's the, that's the trouble in, uh, in, in the trouble with these, uh, with this drive to make all people equal to each other is that you, you run up against these very ugly, um, ugly facts of how people have been socialized and the, the ways that they justify their own path through the world, uh, are full of reflections of the compromises and injustices that led them to that, you know, that led the society to whatever point that you're attempting to then reform and, and move forward and breaking through those, uh, accumulated sort of scars, uh, you know, to, to shift my metaphor suddenly, um, <laughs> is just very hard. Right. Well, so, but, so there was, um, this reminds me, there was a, a, I think it was a Paul Krugman blog post or something from, um, when the tax bill was being talked about, about, um, when you, when we talk about economic factors and the importance of economic factors and money and all of that, a lot of the times we end up talking about, um, as we are with the tax bill, we talk about the plutocrats. What do the plutocrats actually have to gain from more money? Because they already have a lot of money. And you could argue that there are certainly there are CEOs of some companies where they really do need certain reforms for their business to keep functioning as it has been going. But there are a lot of other, the super, super rich people. Like, why do the Koch brothers want their taxes lower? Don't they already have more than they could ever spend? Right. And the answer to this is usually taken that it's not about um, it's not about the money. It's about having more money than the next guy. And um, it's about the fact that you always just have to have more, even if you're never going to use it. And uh, what he was saying in this article was the problem with trying to make plutocrats happy through tax reform is that the other plutocrats get it too. And that means that you're not as far ahead as you thought you were. Um, you know, you're, you just, you're in the same place relative to the other people. And all, once you're that rich, the only thing you have to, the only reason to gain any money is to be better than the next guy. Yep. But you can't be better than the next guy because he's getting the same tax cut. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of the, that's, the problem is that there is a point where economic considerations sound like their economic considerations, but they've moved into the area where it's less about you want your comforts, you want to be financially secure, and into I have to be better than the next guy. And then you get you get you get hybrids of it where it's sort of in the middle, like the the white working class that has not been doing well, 
has you know there are real there are real issues for economic anxiety, but as you know studies have, have been indicating, um, the most economically insecure people tended not to be the Trump voters. You know, it was the the Trump voters were the slightly better off white working class that had really racially antagonistic views, shall we say. Um, so, yeah, I mean, at what point does, does economics simply become the base human desire to dominate and compete and be better than the next guy? I think, I think every study of human nature ultimately, ref I mean, you know, human, when I say human nature, uh, any study of human beings, um, ultimately reflects that aspect of human nature of, uh, our attempt to dominate and display superiority. I disagree. I'm the co I'm the, I'm the full host of this con podcast. You're just the co-host. So... <laughs> but you have to agree with me. You can't, you can't see me right now, but I'm, I'm rolling on my back, displaying my belly and throat to you. Oh, excellent. Yeah. That's, that's good. Like a turtle. You can't get, you can't roll over once you're, once you're stuck on the back. Well, um, yes. All right. Well, this actually, that image is the correct one to end this episode. <laughs> um, in no small part, because we just happen to be at about the hour mark. Right. Um, and it is just the perfect segue. Uh, so today I'm going to give you a sign-off rant that was driving me crazy this week, which is I've, I've ranted before about my irritation at people who stand in the wheelchair spot on the Metro. Well, I've got another little irritation, which I, and I want to preface this with the important um, caveat that different people in wheelchairs have different levels of functionality and are in different degrees of shape and have um, different needs. But... One of the most annoying things for me is when people try to hold doors for me and they hold it in such a way that they're standing in the doorway preventing me from going through the door while holding it open because their feet are in the way and they just do not get this and you try to explain it to them and they don't get it. So I will frequently rush to a door when I see somebody else near it so that I get there first so that I don't have to put up with this. <laughs> um, and uh, one thing that is surprisingly common and very irritating is that you, there will be people who will see you and rush to the door too. So you're sort of racing to see who's <laughs> going to get there first. Now, another reason I don't like to have somebody else get the door for me when we're in this sort of race scenario is that I know full well that I'm actually going to have to slow down and stop if, um, if they get the door, whereas I can just keep going if I'm doing it. So impatience is also a factor. But one of the most amazing, mind-blowing things to me is that if you race to get through the door and somebody else also makes a jump for it, they will sometimes get annoyed with you and say, I was going to get that for you. <laughs> and they want you to feel bad that you didn't slow down and let them, you know, baby you, essentially. <laughs> and I don't know. I th this, was, this was sort of on my mind um, recently when um, some women were talking in the context of some of the workplace, not full levels of harassment, but things that bothered them. And, and, and some of the comments that bother them are things that are sort of infantilizing or like, well, I said whatever nice thing to you, you should like that. Um, I realize this is not on the same degree, but it has the similar level to me of it's just somebody wants you to want a certain thing and you don't want it and they get upset that you don't want it. 
And really, we just need to be a bit more accepting that when people don't want a thing, they don't want a thing, and they don't have to explain why. Anyway, see you next week.